if you guys would not mind opening your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 20, uh, we've been making our way through the Gospel of John. We started John uh, almost a year ago, and we've been making our way through it verse by verse. Uh, if you want to play a catch-up, listen to the MP3s in the past, you can go to our website. It's all there. Download it. Listen to it. Pass it on. Um, we're almost done with the Gospel of John. As James had mentioned, we're going to be starting a brand new series uh, called Theology, the Traits and uh, Beliefs of a Church on Mission. Really excited about it. It's been something I've been praying about doing for well over a year and uh, been spending a lot of time studying it and trying to be prepared for it over the past uh, six months or so. And uh, so I'm really excited about what we're going to be doing. Hopefully, I really feel it's going to kind of bring about a whole new definition, I feel, for us as a fellowship, as a church, a direction for us as a church to help us to just view ourselves as people on mission. That we're sojourners in this world. We're people just kind of making our way through with God's power, God's strength. We've got a call. We've got a mission to fulfill that God has empowered us to fulfill. And uh, really hope to see God do some great things with that. So, John chapter 20 is where we're at today. If you guys are not there yet, if you don't have a Bible, we do have them in the back. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in and get started and start making our way through it. We're going to be taking a look at the resurrection today. The resurrection. Uh, it's going to be great. Let's pray. Father, we just want to give you thanks for this morning. We thank you that Jesus is alive. God, we just thank you that you are a victorious God that has not only taken sin and condemnation and judgment and corruption and, Lord, laid that all in your Son and He paid the price and the penalty for us, rose again from the dead, and He is currently seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning in glory. We thank You, Father, that we, we, we stand, we live, we move because of the events that took place in John chapter 20. I pray that You'd help me to be able to communicate it clearly. I pray that You'd give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that are quick to respond to it. And uh, we ask all these things in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Okay, as I mentioned already, we're basically going to be taking a look at the subject of the resurrection today. That's what John is focusing on. We looked at last week the death of Christ, the significance that that played. But one of the things that I want to basically begin by stating as we begin to look at this is if you were to essentially take the entirety of the New Testament from the Gospel of Matthew all the way to the final book of the New Testament, the uh, book of Revelation, all of the contents from Matthew to Revelation, everything is literally built upon the assumption that Jesus rose again from the dead. Everything. In other words, if you remove the resurrection, you remove the event, or somehow it was a non-event, or it was an event that was fabricated or made up, the New Testament would literally implode upon itself. It wouldn't be able to be sustained. And, and that literally goes for not just simply theology, not just for doctrine, not for ideology, religion, but also for morality, and, and sociology, and the way community would, was to be established and worked out. I mean, we're talking all sorts of systems that we tend to take for granted that the New Testament lays foundations for all of it is literally done so based upon the assumption that Jesus died, rose again from the dead, and is currently established as King of Kings and as Lord of Lords. So, so it's essential for us to understand this, that the event that takes place three days after Jesus' death was not just simply a small thing. It was, just, it was not just simply some sort of event that was done to, to give us motivation to keep moving on, to have good hopes, 
to be happy, to just try to make life the best of what it could be. Literally, it is the event that everything in the New Testament hinges upon. So with that stated, what I want to try to do now is I want to begin to basically look at the story of the narrative, or in the narrative of the resurrection of Christ, try to understand what it is through John's eyes, who is the, uh, the, the, the one who had written this gospel account, and then basically finish with some, some conclusions. How did early Christians view the importance of the resurrection in their life? I and mean, what were, how did the resurrection play into Christianity itself? And consequently into 2,000 years of history in which we're still part of that. What type of role does it take? If I can sort of put it into a very more, in a much more practical question, it would be really this. What are we here for? I mean, what are we here for? I mean, that's really the question that I would ask. I mean, I'm assuming some of you are Christians and some of you that are Christians, the real question is, what are you here for? And I don't just mean in the immediate context of like going to church, well, my roommate brought me. Well, my wife dragged me. Well, I mean, I'm not talking about necessarily here and now in this particular setting, but I'm talking about in the broader scope. What are we here for? What are our lives meant to amount to in light of the event of Jesus rising in from the dead? That's a significant question that literally the New Testament is all about. That early Christians lived to try to understand how does, this is the question, how does the resurrection of Jesus, who is the God-man, how does that affect my life? How does it affect the way that I think? How does it affect the way that I research and study and work and be a dad and be a mom and be a businessman or be a student? That's the question that that really the New Testament seeks to answer. Again, it's all in light of the simple event of Jesus rising in from the dead. So with that, I want to begin to basically begin to take a look at the chapter. We're going to read through it study some uh, pictures that are sort of uh, that arise out of the text, and then want to essentially bring together some conclusions as to how early Christians, New Testament writers, viewed the resurrection in light of morality, uh, community, religion, life itself. How do they view that? So with that, let's begin to jump in, take a look at verse 1. We're going to go through the whole chapter. So verse 1 starts out like this. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. I've mentioned this before, John uses lots of phrases and words that are loaded. Um, What I mean by that, I've used this illustration before, I kind of like it, Uh, it's probably why I use it a lot, but John John writes in hyperlinks, alright, he writes in hyperlinks, that blue text underline, right, it's on a webpage, that's the way John writes, and he uses phrases that are loaded, which means that they're filled with other external meaning that comes from other passages, or it's derived from other sources. Examples of that are are numerous throughout the Gospel of John. But one of the things that I want to really kind of pinpoint in terms of the text that we're looking at here, he uses the phrase, on the first day of the week. That's significant. And the reason why I think it's significant is because John is trying to draw our mindset upon certain concepts and understandings of Old Testament truths. For example, one of which is John points out just when Jesus died on the cross. This was on Good Friday when Jesus died. He says, Jesus cries out from the cross and John records it. It is finished. And then Jesus dies. Gives up the ghost, as John says, and dies. 
And I think John uses that phrase because he's trying to tie in Old Testament concepts by way of hyperlink to bigger Old Testament perspectives and ideas. For example, Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. After God creates all things, God says, it's finished. It's done. And so I think what John's trying to communicate is that something more is happening in the death and the resurrection than what just simply meets the eyes. Something profound is happening. Something profound is taking place. And I think the way John writes is he wants us to see that what's happening is God is literally at work establishing a new paradigm, a new creation, a new work, new Israel, new people of God. That's what's happening here. That phrase or that concept is carried all the way through the New Testament. Paul writes about, and we are new creations in Christ. So what's happening through the death and resurrection of Christ is nothing short of God making new creation out of the old. So you might ask the question, what's wrong with the old? Glad you asked. Great question. The reason why God made new creation is because what had originally happened in God's original creation goes along the lines of this. God creates it all. It's all in rhythm. It's all in harmony. It's all in beauty. Everything is perfect in that sense. It literally is a paradise on planet Earth. And throughout all of the cosmos, everything that God created was literally just going according to the rhythm of God. Heaven and Earth were synchronized. There was no discontinuity between it all. It was all united. And what had happened was, obviously, through the story of sin, man rebels against God. And at the heart of mankind's sin was simply this. They preferred something other over God. Because that's what sin is. I know sometimes in the church, we're really good at honing in on certain moralistic issues and saying, well, some sins are worse than others. I don't think the Bible necessarily seeks to do that. Now, there are some sins that obviously cause more problems and ripples in relationships than others. Adultery is going to cause a heck of a lot more problem than stealing a pen out of your wife's purse. Okay? So my point is that, yes, some sins may cause more problems, but the reality is in terms of sin, sin at its heart is when I prefer something over than the glory and beauty and greatness of God. That's idolatry. It's to say that, God, you're not as beautiful as whatever it is that I'm pursuing after. And it's in that context that God says the moment you sin, in this case you partake of the fruit that I said don't partake of, death will happen. And Adam and Eve's sin literally had these overwhelming consequences that were not just upon them, but were universal. The cosmos was affected. All of the natural order of things was destroyed. Rhythm was upset. There was a fracture throughout all that God created. Creation, original creation, which was once good, has been destroyed. It was one of the reformers, I can't remember if it was Calvin or if it was Luther, basically made this assumption or this statement that what we see today in the world literally is a remnant. It's nothing more than a remnant of a great kingdom past destroyed. 
It's like we see ruins. Can you imagine like going to an ancient, I mean, I had, I've had the privilege of going all around the world. I mean, I've, I've been to, 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 to China, I had an opportunity, one of my favorite places is Scotland, but seeing some of these massive castles. I mean, if you've ever had the privilege of being able to go into a castle, it's just amazing. You're walking through these things, or one of my favorite places is Israel, okay? I love Israel. One of my favorite places in Israel is the city of Caesarea. It was this massive city built by Herod the Great, all right? And you have to have a really good, really good um, imagination to imagine what it used to look like. But everything Herod did was massive. It was overwhelmingly big and great. But you go there now, and there's nothing but ruins everywhere. But even in the ruinous state it lay in, it's still beautiful. I mean, you see these aqueducts that literally go for miles all the way up to Mount Hermon. All right, just these, and they're as tall as this building, some of, some of the areas. Massive rocks that go for miles and miles just to carry water to this little city on the seacoast. It's just all in ruins. That's the way creation is today. We live in a ruined creation. And yet God, seeking to bring forth His goodness once again, breathe new life into it all, ultimately they're at the cross and in His resurrection. Beginning with those that were made in His image. Human beings. We've sinned. And so therefore, that was the cause of death. Sin is what created a corruption, destruction, judgment, the wrath of God. And so therefore, that thing had to have been dealt with. That's what happened on the cross. Jesus rose again from the dead. John uses language like, it's all new. It's on the first day of the week. This is, this is all Genesis 1, Genesis 2 language. That God is doing a new thing. A new creation is happening. Okay, one other final thing that I want to say before we move on is that this was actually, this event of Jesus' resurrection took place and was called the Feast of Firstfruits. Right? There were several feast days that the Jews celebrated, one of which was just Passover. They just celebrated that. Jesus dies on Passover. The first day of the week after Passover, which would have been a Sunday, they typically would celebrate what was called the Feast of Firstfruits. It would go something like this, because it was sort of an agricultural type of a community. They depended upon produce that they grew themselves. And so because you know they live out in the desert, you can imagine how difficult it would be to grow things. So when they would establish new farms and new crops, typically what would happen on the first, Feast of first fruits, the priest would be one of the first guys to go out into the crops at the early morning and look. And he would find like a little sprout, just kind of a tiny little sprout coming out of the ground. He would take that little sprout bring it back, and that would basically become an offering. He would offer that up to God. But that little sprout symbolized the harvest that was to come. So what the, what the feast, for, uh, feast of first fruits was all about. It symbolized the harvest that was to come. And it happens to be on the day that Jesus rose again, at that very moment, somewhere around the area of Israel, a priest would have been out there on a farm looking around for little tiny sprouts coming out of the ground, find one, then take it back and offer it up as a feast of first fruits. Jesus rose again on that particular day. Just to make sure, God, I think, that we didn't miss this, just so that we didn't somehow read into these events, either of the death of Christ or the resurrection of Christ, as just somehow being circumstantial, 
God sits in history, all sorts of amazing, sort of locked-in truths to kind of remove it from the realm of just happenstance, right? In other words, what I'm trying to say is that sometimes people can be like, well, maybe, you know, it was just all like accidental, right? Jesus like accidentally rose again from the dead, or it was just all a story made up. And I think what God's trying to say is that no, no, all of this, as I've been saying the past couple of weeks, all of this is part of a script. It's part of a script. It's a divine narrative, which God established, God wrote, and God even played the main role through His Son, Jesus. It fulfills the whole thing, every last detail of it. This is why when you read your Bible, there might be little phrases that say, this was done in accordance with the Scripture. You know what that simply means? This is done in accordance to the script. God wrote it, and it's happening exactly the way that He intended for it to be unravel. Right? That's it. Here's a couple examples, just to make sure that we understand that I think God set in His Word to say, listen, to make sure you understand the Feast of first fruits is to signify something new. New creation. New life. New direction. New Israel. New relationship. God sets His history of relationships that connect with the Feast of first fruits. Here's, a, here's one. Noah. Remember the story of Noah? God calls Noah and he destroys the earth, right? And Noah has literally an ark. Now, let's think about this the other day. If, if this happened in our day, I don't know if God would... I mean, maybe God would ask him to take one of every animal or two of every animal. But basically, the whole idea be, between, or behind bringing one of two of every animal was to have the seed of every animal, right? So the life of every animal would be on... And if we did that in our day, we can just do like test tubes. Maybe. Right? I mean, you just need to see. They didn't have that technology back then, right? I know it's kind of weird to think, but that's, I don't know. I don't know why I said that. But, but, but that's the idea. And, and not only that, but there's also seed of plants that's kind of being circulated throughout the water and the floods. But here's what happened. God destroys the entire earth by this cataclysmic flood. And Noah's on this barge floating all around. And it just so happens to be, if you read in the Bible, the very date that Noah found earth and landed the ark on Mount Ararat corresponds to the Feast of Herstories. This is God saying, hey, new life. Old is dead. Noah, do something new with you. Here's another example. When Israel uh, was in Egypt, the means by which God used to get them out of Egypt was called the Passover. Very well known, very well documented, a documented story. What happens is after the Passover, after them made their way out, you read through the story, you begin to realize that what happens was that there was a little bit of a period of time between the moment they got out of Egypt from the Passover when they came to the Red Sea. As they came to the Red Sea, they were confronted with the Red Sea before them. The story is that on either side there were mountains. They couldn't go to the left, they couldn't go to the right, they couldn't go forward behind them just to kind of make things a little bit more tough, God allows the Egyptian army to basically follow them and essentially traps them. So they're literally trapped in the story. They can't go anywhere. So the issue is this, they're going to die. All right, God sets them free through the Passover, and they're free. But they got another challenge. All right, they're going to die. Like, like that's, a, that's a big challenge. So here's what happens. It just so happens to be on the Feast of Firstfruits, God parts the Red Sea. 
And they make their way out. And God gives them a whole new life ahead of them. There's another example. When the children of Israel came to the land of Canaan, after 40 years of wilderness wandering, right? What happens is the first time they come into the land of Canaan, we're told that they ate the fruit of the land. The very next day, manna stopped coming. It was the Feast of First Fruits. It's basically God's way of saying, look, Feast of First Fruits signifies new life. This is one of my favorite examples in the Old Testament. Here's the story. You guys familiar with the story of Esther? Right? All you women are like, yes, I love that chick. All right? All right? Uh, the story of Esther is this. All right? She was a girl that lived in Persia. All right? She was a queen, beautiful girl, uh, one of the most beautiful in all the kingdoms. Her husband was kind of a tyrant type of a guy, the type of guy you didn't want to make mad. He killed you if you got him mad. And so what had happened was in the, in the story, there's a guy by the name of Haman. He hated the Jews. In particular, he hated this guy by the name of Mordecai. Now, Mordecai was actually related to Esther. You guys following so far? Now, nobody knew that Esther was Jewish because nobody really knew the connection between Esther and Mordecai, especially Haman. Now, Haman was kind of like the vice pres to uh, the king of the, of all, the entire area, right? And Mordecai, or, or Haman hated Mordecai, all right? He hated this guy. And so Haman wanted to kill every Jew throughout the entire land. Wanted to have them all killed. And so what had happened is basically, in, in through the story, uh, God raises up Esther, who is a Jew, kind of undercover, right? She's undercover. And what happens is she's still obviously dialoguing with Mordecai, her relative. And Mordecai's like, listen, you've got to understand something. Haman, the guy that you're working with, hates Jews... He doesn't know you're a Jew, and he's seeking to get a law passed that says anybody that's Jewish will die. Right? So Esther's kind of tripping out about this whole scenario, like, what's going to happen to me? Where am I going to be? You know, and what happens is Mordecai challenges her. He says, listen, you need to go to the king, right? You're his wife. You need to go to the king, seduce the king, somehow get him to change his mind and overturn this whole thing. Her response is this. If I go to the king and I'm not summoned, I'll be killed. Right? You don't just like go knocking on the king's door, like, what's up? Can we have coffee? I'll kill you. You know, I mean, that's the way it worked back then. You just don't go hang out with your husband and unless you were summoned. So she's literally looking at the, the law of the land. She's like, if I go to him and I'm not called and he's grumpy, I die. Right? Mordecai's like, listen, either you die trying. Or every Jew will die because he did nothing. So she realizes, I'm going to die either of old age, I'm going to die trying, or I'm going to die doing nothing. So she basically says, I'll go. If I die, I die. So she goes to the king, and the king basically overthrows this decree. Haman is killed. Guess what day Haman's killed on? Feast of first fruits. It's God's way of locking into the text. First fruits speaks of new life. Can you imagine being a Jew throughout the kingdom thinking we're dead? We are dead. This guy Haman is powerful. And as if God's saying, no, 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 he's, you might think he's powerful, but he's not more powerful than me. I will bring life. 
And that's God's way of saying, listen, the first day of the week, Jesus rose in the Feast of First Fruits. Jesus rose to bring new life. This is a new thing that God's doing, a new creation, new Israel, new work, new beautiful life that God gives. That's where he's going with all this. And he goes on, basically verse uh, 1, so Mary gets to the tomb. She's very sad. She makes an observation that the stones rolled away. In verse 2, she says, so she ran and then she went back to Simon and Simon Peter and told the other disciples that uh, the one whom Jesus had loved. Now, again, this is John writing this. John oftentimes writes in third person. In this particular uh, statement, he basically writes of himself. He's like, hey, uh, she comes back and tells Peter and the guy that Jesus loves. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of funny, you know, but it's at the same time, it's kind of enviable. I mean, here's a guy that's just like, he's confident in the fact that Jesus loves him. I don't think it's in this arrogant way, like, yeah, Jesus loves me. But I think it's like in this humble way of like, the one that Jesus loves. So he writes, the one that Jesus loves, she comes back, verse 3, so Peter went out with the other disciple, and they're going towards the tomb, verse 4, both of them were running together, and the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, again, check this out. So John's writing this, right? And he's like, listen, when Mary came and said, they've stolen the body of Jesus, Peter and the other guy who will remain silent ran to the tomb, and the other guy won. And it's basically his way of saying, the other guy is way faster than Peter. <laughs> Love it. And somehow all that's inspired. I mean, God's awesome. Verse 3. So Peter went, in, went out there with the other. And verse 4 says, both of them were running together, and the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping in, he looked. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, but did not go in. Then some of Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and saw and believed. For as yet they had not yet understood the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes." So John walks in after Peter. Peter's the first guy to actually walk in the tomb. And it says that John believes. He believed. Now what he believed I think was a little bit um, maybe uh, incomplete because John goes on to basically say the very next thing that nobody really understood that all of these things were basically fulfilled in the Scriptures. So I think it was his way of saying, when I walked in there, I knew something happened. This just wasn't, you know, grave robbery. Something was at work here. And what is going to happen, uh, it's going to get revealed to them in just a little bit. So here's Mary, basically left at the tomb by herself. These guys came in, checked it out, and then bailed. And here's Mary, she's back at the tomb by herself. So this is the second time she's back at the tomb on Sunday morning, checking things out. She's all by herself. Verse 11, But Mary stood weeping outside of the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped in and looked into the tomb. And when she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had been lain, one at the head and the other at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. So she's very confused. She's very sad. The interesting thing about this is that Mary Magdalene had been a woman... In the past, the other gospel accounts tell us that she was demon-possessed. And she was a woman that probably was abused throughout her life. I would suspect some of the gospel, uh, some of the 
theologians and trying to understand Mary have taught this. And here's Mary basically standing there at the tomb. She's very sad. She still has this indelible impression in her mind of watching the one that she loved brutally murdered, brutally tortured, and then killed. And if you've ever seen a fatal accident, you know those images never leave your mind. Ever. 20 years can go by and you can still somehow immediately place yourself back at that moment feeling all the pain, feeling all the fear, smelling the smells. Everything about that moment is somehow locked into your brain. And she's just sad. They've taken away the body of the one that she loves. And here she's dialoguing with this guy. She assumes who is the actual gardener. Again, I think this is another insight in which John's trying to communicate. The original creation began in a garden. And everything concluded there in the garden. Adam was kicked out of the garden. The new creation begins in a garden. Adam was a gardener. She assumes Jesus to be a gardener. Alright? So she's having this dialogue with Jesus. Doesn't really know it's Him. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing Him to be the gardener, she said to Him, Sir, if you have carried Him away, tell me where you have laid Him, and I will take Him away. And Jesus then said, Mary. And she turned and said to Him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus then said to her, Do not cling to Me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to the brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. I love the way that Jesus describes this. He's basically like, listen, He's my Father, but He's also your Father. He's my God, but He's also your God. He's sharing this relationship with those who follow Him. This is kind of an amazing insight into what the Gospel accomplishes. What the resurrection of Christ does take place, or what it brings about. It brings about this relationship that we are at one time estranged from God, yet God brings us into this relationship with Himself. Jesus says, hey, go tell the other brothers uh, that I'm coming. Then it goes on to say, verse uh, 18, that Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that He had said these things to her. Verse 19, then, on the evening of the first day, again, the first day of the week, the door is being locked. So this is Sunday night, Sunday night service, whatever they're doing. They're afraid. They're hanging out. Uh, we're told that the doors were locked. And you can imagine the reason why, if you were kind of in their shoes, you'd probably do the same thing. They had just taken your rabbi. But they didn't just take your rabbi for the sake of taking a rabbi. They took him because they believed him to basically be a heretic slash insurrectionist. So, not only a guy that preached heresy, but they also believed him to be a guy that was basically uh, seeking to usurp the authority of Rome. So, if you're one of his followers, you would rightly assume, we're next. Right? We're next. So, these guys are in a room somewhere in the city of Jerusalem, hiding with the door locked, and not knowing about what has just happened. And then Jesus comes in verse 19 and says, into the door. And he stood among them and he said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad that they saw the Lord. And then Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. And as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you, have, if you forgive sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness... 
from anyone, it is withheld. So I think what happens here, again, in the picture of what's taking place, Jesus comes into the scene, and these guys weren't expecting Christ to show up. Obviously, they had not fully understood the Scriptures and what the Bible had talked about. In other words, they didn't understand the script. They didn't fully understand it. They had little glimpses of it, but for the most part, it was fuzzy to them. It was unclear and uncertain to them. And so here they are on Sunday evening. A lot of them are just confused. They're fearful. They're thinking that they're going to come find us at some point. Maybe any knock on the door is just going to send fear down their, you know, down their spine, thinking we're going to, we're going to die. Right? All of a sudden, Jesus shows up in their midst and he says, peace be with you. The actual Hebrew word there, the phrase there is shalom malachim, which literally means may God's peace be over you. And it was basically a phrase that was not just simply a greeting. You know, Jews today, they'll say shalom. But it was also a phrase which indicated, let it be so. Let God's grace or let God's peace be in you or upon you. It's almost in a prophetic way. Jesus is saying, listen, don't be afraid. It said, have God's peace. I'm here. And then he shows him his scars, his wrists, and his feet, and his side. And it's basically his way of saying, I'm not dead. I've conquered the grave. You can imagine the joy that was in the hearts of these guys. And then Jesus basically gives us commission. The other gospel accounts are a little bit more full of uh, the extent of this. John just simply selects this. I want to try to do my best to try to understand what Jesus is saying here in verse 23 especially. He says, if you forgive the sins of anyone, they're forgiven. But if you withhold forgiveness from anyone, uh, it is withheld. I think what he's trying to communicate here, sometimes uh, I think that this has been taken out of context. It's been abused and misused in the sense to mean that you know now we've got the power, we've got the ability, and the church has abused this, especially in the past, to say that we are the sole proprietors of determining who's saved and who's not. And I don't think that's at all what Jesus is implying, at all what Christ is trying to communicate, that somehow we have the ability to just like walk up to people like, hey, I like your hair, dude. I think you're saved. Alright? I don't like your smile, dude. You're going to hell. Alright? That's it. Like, please, can I be saved? No, you're dead. You are damned, man. Like, you, it's not going to work out. And somehow this mentality, like, we have the power, the ability to, like, determine who's saved and who's not. That is not, I don't, I just, I think that's an abuse of what the text is trying to communicate. I think what Jesus is saying here, and this is in connection with other passages where Jesus says, uh, whatever you loose on, uh, heaven will be loose on earth, whatever you, Bind in heaven will be bound on earth. I think it's this idea of saying, in the same way that I have the ability, the power to grant life and to deny life. I, I, am, I am God. It's as if Jesus is saying, the way that this new community will work in my absence will be through the body. I am the head. I grant life. I give forgiveness. But I will continue this through my body. You will be my representatives. That's all of us, not just a priest, not just a religious leader, but all of us. We have the ability through Christ and the Scriptures to basically listen, to hear, to pronounce. This is not the idea of basically somehow determining whether or not someone is saved or forgiven. It's basically the idea in essence of just simply declaring whether or not someone is forgiven or not. 
I'll give you an example of this. If in a dialogue with somebody and you're talking with them about the Gospel, about Christ and about God's love, and they say, you know what, I don't believe it. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe in the Gospel. I don't believe in the church. Yada, yada. I don't believe in anything. Alright? I think it's okay to humbly, okay, emphasize, underline, italicize, humbly. I don't think you're saved. I don't think you know the forgiveness of God. Right? Christians love to have power and to abuse it, don't we? We love to throw around the word heretic. Or we love to throw in the idea of like, they're not saved. And the reality is a lot of times I think it's just born out of bitterness and not so much out of understanding of the Word of God. So I think Jesus' point is that, listen, to say or to declare some to be forgiven. All you're simply doing is you're, you're, you're not determining their forgiveness. You're not the one to forgive them, but you're declaring the fact that they're forgiven based upon their relationship to recognizing the Gospel and receptivity to it. Does that make sense? hope that makes sense. So in other words, as Christians, we're not the ones that are going around determining who's saved, who's not, who's forgiven, who's not forgiven. We're simply declaring it based upon a person's response to the grace of God through Christ. That's what I think he's trying to communicate. So he finishes up this little section here about verse 24. He says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin. He was not there when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands in the mark of his nails and place my finger in the mark of his nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I love this about Thomas. I mean, some, you know, sometimes people call him like doubting Thomas. I don't think he's doubting Thomas. I think he's like skeptic Thomas. I think there's a difference. Right? I think skeptical people are just ones that are like, I refuse to believe until I like see or experience, right? And I love this because God, in His grace, even loves guys like this or girls like this, right? And, and, and so what He does is He shows up. He already knows where Thomas is going with this. He knows that Thomas is like, I refuse to believe unless I see, feel, touch, everything. And Jesus shows up in the room again, just like He did eight days earlier. And He's like, what's up, Thomas? Peace be with you. He's like, hey, check it out. Want to touch my scar? It's as if he already knew. He obviously already knew what Thomas was thinking. Thomas turns around. Can you imagine what was going through Thomas's mind or the emotions or the affections that sort of raised out of Thomas's heart knowing that there's Jesus right there. And he's basically saying, hey, you said you weren't going to believe unless you touched. Here, touch. And automatically Thomas turns around sees Jesus and cries out, My Lord and my God. Verse 29, Then Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. Okay, so he's basically saying, Listen, you believe because you saw me. But there's going to come a time when there are going to be people that are going to believe on me and they've never seen anything. They're more blessed. Right? Which basically probably makes up for most of us here today if you're a Christian. None of us, I don't think, have ever seen Jesus. But we yet we believe. So he finishes this little section here. Verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that, Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. 
and that by believing you might have life in his name. Okay, so John summarizes all this, and basically his point is this, that there's a lot of miracles that Jesus did. I mean, this is one of the reasons in reading the other gospel accounts. You realize that there are a lot of other stories Jesus taught, a lot of other parables he spoke about, a lot of other uh, kingdom truths he communicated, a lot of other miracles that had taken place. But John basically isolates just a handful. And John selects certain of those many, many miracles and teachings for a specific purpose. John says, my intention behind all of this is just to give you a sampling so that in hearing, you believe. But not that belief is the end in all this, guys. Okay, I, I hope out of everything here today,